Hi, everybody. I highly recommend the One Dating Hurts podcast. I found the podcast after I left an abusive relationship, but it continuously helps me on my healing journey. The podcast always reminds me that these people are damaged, they're emotionally draining, and they're dangerous to be around. I appreciate everything Bill has done for people like me. It keeps me from ever even considering going back. Love should not hurt. You deserve respect more than anything in a relationship. Take your power back and live the life you want to live. You deserve it. The When Dating Hurts podcast continues to grow in popularity. The more who listen, the more who will know the realities of dating and domestic violence. In the meantime, the When Dating Hurts book in paperback, ebook, and audiobook is being purchased and read by concerned parents, teachers, victims, and survivors, and of course, those who are currently dating. Education leads to empowerment. That way, if a potential abuser is targeting you or someone you care about, you will know how to detect it and how to break free and stay safe. Up next, another survivor story to illustrate how an innocent person can become manipulated and trapped in abusive relationships. This is part two of Amanda's story of domestic violence. Here is Amanda. I think that we're spiritual beings having a human experience and I really feel that and I am as flawed as they come and I'm okay to own it. I never understand when people aim for perfection. I think the thing is, is why strive for it? It's kind of like, you know, we have this notion in our head as to what perfect might be, but it's kind of a collection maybe of all the things we've heard throughout our lives that everybody thinks things should be. To me, if something works, it works. Man in the Arena, uh, Roosevelt, it's... Yes, oh yeah. The person that's in the arena, daring greatly. I love that. Absolutely. You know what? I think that I'll have that on my headstone. I don't want to be around someone who's not, you know, their face is not marred with dirt and dust and, you know, the people that are judging the man who stumbles. Yeah, no, I really... Do you know a bit of Brene Brown as well? Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. That vulnerability and that uh, people that you have to be careful about who you share your shame stories with, but it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to show up in this imperfect way. I'm right there with you. I mean, that's the real you, right? For all of us. Exactly. Exactly. And I want my children to know that I'm going to love them on a good day, on a bad day. And that's not what I had growing up. It's had to be perfect. And I was not. It's amazing what you were able to do with your life. It really is. But let's get to that. So you, at the age of 16, somehow get away from your mother. Why don't you take us back to that? Do you and your twin both break away at that time? A little bit complicated in that regard. Quickly, really quickly go back. So I was 13 and my mum, I came home one day from school and we never knew what mood she was going to be in. And I remember I used to say, please, God, please let mum be in a good mood today. I'd say over and over like this obsessive mantra. But one day I came home, I was 12 or 13, and she said, that I had two options. 
or three options, but I always forget the third one. I could go live with my biological father, I could go to boarding school, and there was another third one. And I said, okay, I'll go live with my dad because it was in the same town, small town. So I went to live with him and he was a different kind of abusive. So he would give me money, which was the first time I've ever really had money. And I was very small until then, but he would give me money and I'd use it for food, like chocolates and chips and, you know, really deep fried food, which was the origin because mum was English and we would eat a lot of deep fried food. And I started to put on weight. And he also started to abuse me or perpetuate, you know, the continuation of abuse. But he would not only be sexually inappropriate, he would do things like shred my clothes with knives and he would hold knives to me and he would be really, oh, it's terrifying. It was absolutely, when I think back, one of the most terrifying times of my life. And I think, so my twin stayed with my mum and again, being mindful that she was a lot more agreeable. She was a lot more willing. She was basically mum's slave. She just used to have to clean for her. She would have to go to work in the mornings, even though she was only in year eight and year nine. She would clean the local pub and give mum all her money. So with my with my father, and again, even now with his family, they think, you know, they said, oh, he's such a nice guy. He wasn't capable of doing that. What do they think that child abusers look like? They don't look like a certain way. They can be nice men. They can be nice people. I think, though, that the signs were there and even mum said as I aged, oh, oh, yeah, I did think he was, you know, being inappropriate. I did think he might have been. So he basically just treated me as his wife, which was awful. And um, just before I was 16, I went back with my mum And we moved to Perth. Again, she never wanted me around and she said one day I started to go to this job club. So I never even finished year 11 and 12, Bill. So I tried to but my brain just wasn't able to, wasn't quite there, obviously with so much trauma going on. She said to me one day, I don't want you here, you can leave. And through the job club they set me up with a homeless shelter and I was put on a homeless benefit and I was 16 I had no idea about anything so I was in this homeless like residential care there were obviously other homeless children very troubled there were some scary incidences but nothing in comparison to what I'd already experienced so it was okay and they put me in a my own one bedroom flat and I remember Bill it was only 33 bucks a week rent <laughs> mm-hmm I didn't know how to um didn't know how to budget my money, so I cooked taxis everywhere around Perth. So that's where I um I live now in WA, and so I spent all my money. But I was living alone, and through my homeless status, I got into it's more like a vocational type of yeah, it's like a technical school vocational. Yeah, so I even though I hadn't finished eleven and twelve, I was there one of their youngest students, and I got through on an equity thing. So I did a Cert 3 and Cert 4 of social welfare and then I did a Cert 3 and Cert 4 of juvenile justice and just being mindful that I still was recovering from trauma but I also had so many opinions, oh my goodness, so many opinions and I was polarising. It felt like people either liked me or they didn't. 
Well, they really didn't, I should say. Then, though, I was an activist. I became really into my activism, but that also involved some substance use. I probably really was masking my trauma. Again, at that point, I was downplaying it. It wasn't that bad. My twin kind of was really going downhill as well. She started smoking marijuana about the age of 16, so when I left home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously we if someone has a disposition to any kind of psychosis coupled with trauma and then because there's such a strong family history of mental health issues, you know, mum had some psychoses as well. So my twin really descended into her own illness and substance use. So she started to... Well, they first said it was schizoid affective disorder, but it was paranoid schizophrenia. So I left home at 16. I then struggled for a few years. I met someone through like a depression group and it was a woman and I didn't really identify as gay, but she held my hand and I was desperately lonely. She was 10 years older than me. She was a pretty amazing person. So we had a relationship and I was kind of convinced into <laughs> convinced into lesbianism, as funny as that sounds, <laughs> because men were dangerous. I didn't really want to go there. They symbolised everything that was frightening. And even though I had my mother who was a perpetrator, it felt like the odds were that men were the most dangerous. Yes, it follows. Yeah, so I had my first relationship, but then... Unfortunately, some drug use followed with her and I. She was working, ironically, with people. So she was a phlebotomist. She was working with people that had heroin issues through the naltrexone clinic. And and one day, I think we were on a break, as they call it, but she actually died of a heroin overdose. Oh, my goodness, really? Mm. I've actually got a tattoo of her name, my my very first tattoo of her name. Oh. Yeah, and then it was a really big wake-up call for me. I About drugs? Yep. Okay. I thought, I'm going to die too. So I was 24 at that time and I went into a, like it was called like a, a next step. So basically it's like a detox and they made me keep a drug diary so of how much medication I was taking. And a lot of the time they call it, I don't know if they call it over there, Bill, like doctor shopping. No, I don't know that. Doctor shopping. Yeah, so I'd go to all different doctors oh. and say, oh, I need this. And now I think they've got some kind of register, but that I would get my Valium or my medication from all these different doctors. I see. Okay, I get you. I got you. So you really you really had a, your own little pharmacy going on. Yes. So. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. And, you know, the pathology of addicts is that you get so good at tricking people. Part of the pathology of addicts is that you learn to lie, you learn to keep secrets, you learn to hide. Just after she died, I'd had this drug diary and I really wanted to change. I had done obviously some things that I weren't really happy with in regards to shoplifting actually so it's a bit embarrassing to talk about but I'd shoplifted luckily the two times that I got caught I had been given spent convictions so it wasn't and hasn't been on my record because that could have really changed the 
form of my life. Mm -hmm. But I had gone into this rehab and I'd taken 450 different tablets in five days. Whoa. Wow. Yes. Yep. And again, even as I tell you now, I'm like, oh, it's just 450 tablets. How ridiculous does that sound? (laughs) It sounds deadly. There by the grace of God go I, even today, I think, you know, I don't know how I'm still here, but I am. I loved those benzos because they took away this feeling of distress and anxiety. So I went into rehab and I came off these benzos and life didn't actually start to magically get better, but I went to uni through those certificate threes and fours and throughout my 20s I had really bad social anxiety. So even though I was studying, so I have a degree now in politics, international studies, so I graduated with my degree at the age of 29, each single unit that I did at uni was torturous. I had this whole idea of this better life and this better life for myself and I knew that education was a thing that would get me out of poverty. First in family, my my family of origin to get a degree but it was not easily got, I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go into any class because I was afraid that the other, so you'd have to go, you know how you have to go around the room and say, you know, my name is Amanda and sure. I'm doing this. and <laughs> Terrifying. Huh? Oh, I was worried that my face would go red and ridiculous things. But so I would try and get all my uni on online, but then I didn't have a proper computer. <laughs> So I went to uni, slowly got my degree, didn't really have a proper job throughout my whole 20s. And then I met someone and we moved up to the Pilbara. So that's in Western Australia. I was lucky because there was this jobs boom and I got <laughs> I got a job, a really good job, and I began to mask. I began to use these big words and act like I was just completely functioning and able to do this job. So I'd gone from no job to working in local government and leading a team of compliance officers. So (laughs) I still laugh at the irony of that. Um, Yeah. So I'd gone from earning like a student um, allowance from the government to $95,000 a year. Oh, my goodness. Oh. (laughs) Is that $95,000? What, Australian dollars? Is that what they call it? Or Yeah, so what would that be over there then? I don't know. Do you think more or less? I need to work that out. That's an interesting question. But I also had company housing because up there you'd pay $1,400 a week rent for a house. Ooh. So my role gave me a job, a house, and I just had to pretend to be this completely functioning individual. <laughs> um <laughs> And somehow I pulled it off uh. and then I continued into a career around governance and policy and procedure writing and it worked for me, Bill, because I love rules. I love people to follow rules. I'm this ex-lesbian sleeve-tattooed auditor who loves people to behave. <laughs> and this is basically me in a nutshell, you know. I um, And then I, I started to foster. I met my former wife that was a different relationship to I first went up with um and I think that maybe at some other point we can kind of discuss those relationships because again 
the trauma from my childhood and the attachment wounds that I saw with my mother showed up in my own relationships. Now you say former wife. Do you mean truly wife, like married wife? Yep, as in married wife. The irony was that marriage equality wasn't in Australia when we first got married, but it came in when we got divorced. Oh. <laughs> so I wasn't, I wasn't a good enough citizen to have my marriage acknowledged at the time, but they made me pay a divorce fee. <laughs> I um, want to quickly go back to when Jeanette passed away. Yes, please do that. JJ and I were, so she was actually, um, she had a child when we were 20. I have a niece and just before her death, JJ was very unwell and, as I say, she was really going into addiction and psychosis. She started to lose her teeth. She was very, very, very unwell. She was homeless. She was transient. I tried so hard to get her the help that she needed. I'd write letters to the chief psychiatrist when she was unwell. I'd see her on the streets. For some reason, I don't know if it was this twin thing, I'd just run into her and I couldn't help her in the way I wanted to because I was struggling myself. But nobody really helped her, even though I told them that she was sick. She even turned at my mum's funeral and said that, although you treated me badly, I didn't wish you dead. And I really struggled with that. I really thought, why did they allow her to say that? Because I had all this idea of loyalty enshrouded to my mother. And now I realise that she should have been able to say what she wanted to, and she did. But my niece was removed off my twin when my niece was four years of age, when my twin was found selling her body and my niece was taken when there was, my twin was doing that. And my niece was removed and was, has, that one foster family and this foster mother was going to keep her until my twin hopefully got better and then she would, even though she was an emergency foster carer, she said, okay, I'll keep her for as long as um, she needs. But my twin didn't get better. She, she got a lot worse. She was absolutely hysterical when her daughter got removed. She called my cousin and she was just absolutely beyond inconsolable. And what we know now is that parents whose children are removed, they're often not given the skills to get their children back. I don't know what it's like over there, Bill, but here usually they're given an action plan of the things that they need to rectify. So things like find a house, work on your mental health, do all these things, but they're not really given the capacity or the skills to be able to do so. They have a similar thing here. You might have to have a car, you have to have a job, you have to have a, an apartment you live in and you prove you can pay for it. Yes. Yeah, so this is pretty much what happened to my twin and she wasn't able to do that. And my niece stayed in that one foster family until she's now 19. Mm-hmm. So she was very lucky and she also deserved it, of course. You know, like it, it's all trauma, you know, it's trauma for my niece especially, it's trauma for my twin, it's trauma for trauma for everyone. Okay, so I'll, I'll kind of go back to uh, my twin. So she met someone just before she passed away and he was, he was nice. He's still alive now and he was nice to her, he was kind. She finally got on a community treatment order which meant that she had to have antipsychotic via needle, otherwise she wouldn't get her 
a government subsidy, and I'm not sure if they've got something like that over there. So she had a home. She didn't live fantastically. She obviously had, you know, a home that kind of was a bit like hoarders. But she ended up getting married to this man and he... Oh, how about that? Just for the couple of years before she died, they were both schizophrenics, but there was some love there. And for the first time, she had some kind of stability. I think, you know, it's certainly not... She didn't have a great life, Bill. There wasn't anything that... There was not... I don't think there was a lot of joy, but maybe she was a lot... She had a lot more humility than I did, you know, just before... The couple of years before she passed away, even before that I was... Like I said, I had this kind of conflicting feeling of being... I had this survivor guilt in a way, but I felt like I just couldn't do anything, even though I tried so many times to get her help, but I just couldn't do it. I couldn't, no matter what I said, and even in the words that I have, and I feel like now words are all I have, but there wasn't anything that I could do to change the output of her life. There wasn't a way to change it. And there was one day I was with my former wife and we got this phone call. And I remember hearing the message from her husband and he said, your twin has died. She is on, she's in the bathroom. Call me back. And I, so I first had this voicemail and I thought, you know, when you can't, I imagine maybe you're similar. You, you hear this news and it doesn't comprehend. It doesn't make sense. I was like, at first she just sought me or she called me just for some money because that's usually what she did. Mm-hmm. And my wife at the time called back because it came from her phone and he said to her that my twin had died and by that time the ambulance had been and then they were waiting for her to be picked up from, is it like an undertaker or something? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And I remember when mum died, I felt like I'd been hit by a truck. So when she had suicided in 2010, I also got a text message from her husband all the way from Pakistan but she survived everything, my mother, and I didn't think, you know, she had so many overdoses in her time. I didn't think that anything would happen to her. I was worried. I said a prayer, but I thought she would be okay. And when she wasn't, the next day when I got another text from her husband named Hashmi, so that obviously her um, her last husband, and I remember thinking it just didn't make sense. It didn't Makes sense. But when my twin died, I remember it was the most indescribable pain. But I'd also known, I'd also known somehow that she wasn't going to live for long. I remember I saw her the night before she died and we brought her over some food. And I said to my wife at the time, I think... Sometimes when I see my twin, I feel like this is the last time I'm ever going to see her. And then the next day she had died. So she had a massive heart attack. Oh. Apparently the coroner said she had had some heart attacks in the days before. And with schizophrenics and with people that have used drugs, sorry, their cortisol levels are high. They, I think it was, uh, they found meth in her system. 
and meth does things to your arteries as well. Oh, and God. living in a state of being terrified through her own psychosis, she was constantly scared. So her whole body, you know, she didn't eat well. She only ate fast food. She was a smoker. So she had all these risk factors. But the cardiologist said, you know, it's obviously very unusual for someone at 34 to die of severe coronary artery disease. That is so young. And she, I see that as the epitome of my twin paying the price of all the trauma that she experienced. And usually I can say, okay, well, this happened for a reason. But I can tell you, Bill, that I think that she was failed by so many people and I cannot see a reason why, I cannot see a good reason why she died after a life, a life of suffering. It doesn't make sense to me. Okay, mum died at 2010. It either was an accidental overdose or a suicide. And on her death certificate, it says death by poison. And Pakistan has different different ways of recording things as, you know, we might. But I can understand why my mum died. But my twin was just a product of just suffering. But it maybe was just an avalanche of trauma, an avalanche of suffering for all of us. But there was something, I don't know, very sad, something so very sad about someone who really didn't have a chance. It is sad that, unlike you, she didn't turn it around. She didn't finally figure out a path that she could save herself. She just went down with it. She was the accumulation of all the things that had been done to her. You're right. Definitely a, cu- a culmination of the things that were done to her. And But I also feel like I'm only here by chance. I don't know. Like if I, you know, say when you say turning my life around, I did. But I also, from the beginning, challenged the status quo. She didn't really get the opportunity to. She was just treated as a servant, a slave, a, as she thought her identity was just to be, again, like I've mentioned before, like a commodity. Yes. I also think that, you know, so many people enabled the bad behaviour towards her. Someone, and again, I know I've said it, someone needs to have said something. And I say this saying now, and I really believe it's the epitome of you stand for nothing, you fall for anything. Take a side, pick a side. Yeah, it's true. What do you stand for? She just somehow didn't have the capacity that you have to ever get around it all. And, I, you know, I, I'm not blaming her because... I listened to your story. I don't know how I would handle that. You know, I didn't have that existence. You know, I had a a good and loving mother Mm. up until she died two years ago at 99 years old, by the way. I was um, extremely fortunate and I knew it. I knew it the whole time. You deserve that though. People deserve a loving mother like you've had, Bill. Well, I think Mm. everybody does, except the difference is I got one. You know, I think about my own mortality now. I've got children. You know, my grandmother, so my mum's mum, died at 52. My mum died at 51. My twin died at 34. Some of my mum's sisters, one also died at 51, which feels like I've just got a couple of good years left in me. But um, there is such a generational continuation of early death, of suffering, of what does it take to break the cycle of pain? What does it take to break the cycle of suffering? How come some of us can and some of us can't? And how come some of us have to have had the pain like you've had and then you've been able to turn it into something beautiful and remarkable and 
honouring the legacy of your beautiful daughter, but then there's some of us that feel guilt for continuing to exist and have that survivor guilt, which I've had um, a lot of therapy. So I've had TMS, which basically is transcranial magnetic stimulation. Have you heard of that? I have, but it's been a long time ago. So I had 40 sessions of that. I've had five stellate ganglion blocks, which they used to give for Vietnam veterans when they returned from war. They used to use it for pain, but then they realized it calmed down their nervous system from PTSD as well. So I've had five of those. I've had a round of ketamine treatment for PTSD. And you know what? (laughs) None of it worked. I used to think, wow, I'm going to have this and I'm going to feel I'm going to be the Dalai Lama. I'm going to be relaxed. I'm, my nervous system is going to be, I'm just, and then nope, I'm just, here I am, stressed as always. And I've had a lot of therapy. I have an amazing psychologist now. I have the inherent desire to calm down, to be, to regulate my nervous system. And people say, oh, this is definitely going to work. And it just hasn't. And I don't know why, what it is about me that I'm still suffering. I think though that as my psychologist said, you know, I don't have an identity to go back to. So I had three rounds of Vietnam before I was born. So when you have someone that's had an okay childhood, even okay, because we know that good enough is okay, then they're able to come back to a sense of their own identity. But when you haven't had an identity to begin with, what do you come back to? That's a very good point. So I I'm struggling still at the age of 42. I have a pretty good life now. I'm educated. I'm about to start a consultancy, even though, you know, I've been working for as a governance professional and then I've been working in Aboriginal health, working in a remote Aboriginal health service, which I loved as a compliance specialist. And then, and now I'm working in an Aboriginal legal service in policy, but I'm really kind of taking my own, I'm taking a big leap for me. So now I'm really wanting to work as a protective behaviours practitioner, teaching children about autonomy, about their bodies, about teaching families about how to identify grooming behaviours. So I did a um, the postgrad in counselling. I'm now doing starting a postgrad in family violence practice and I'm doing some micro qualifications around interrupting men's violence. And I would basically say now, and as my husband said, when he first met me, he thought I was a hardcore feminist. And I still am a hardcore feminist and I'm proud to be one. And I, again, challenging the status quo, I do not abide to this whole weaponized incompetence that sometimes, sorry, Bill, that men sometimes have where they, they're expected to be not as capable as women or not to pick up the physical load or the mental load. There's no such behaviour in my house. My son, who's two, she, he was two a couple of days ago, he wears pink. There's no colours that are for boys or for girls. We challenge toxic masculinity and the patriarchy every step of the way. Good. I'm glad. That's great. I want to work in a way that helps deconstruct the ideas that one trauma has to define you, which is ironic because it has defined me in many ways. And that's why I'm in the capacity I'm here today. I want the legacy of my childhood not to go into theirs. And that's the thing that I battle with often because I either think I'm a good parent, or then if I raise my voice because I'm feeling overwhelmed, automatically I think that I'm like my parents. There's no shades of grey. I can understand that. 
because I know what developmental trauma does, you know. I know how it is to feel the effects throughout your whole life and I do not want that for any child. I feel so strongly about that and that's where ultimately I'd like to work in regards to consulting, in regards to teaching parents about, you know, capacity building, which, again, you know, I struggle with because I know that I'm not a perfect parent. But, again, what's perfection? We don't need to be perfect to be a good parent. We just need to care and we need to be conscious in a way that we're leading our children. So Mm -hmm. I, again, I'd only had relationships with women and with my former wife, we had a known donor through IVF. Tell me that again. You had a what? A known donor, so a donor. Basically to have a baby, have a, to have a child. Yeah, so the missing ingredient, so to speak, Bill, that yes. two women don't have. <laughs> I, I think I get it. <laughs> so we had an IVF donor and my wife at the time knew this person who she thought would be a fantastic Well, she always thought he'd be a fantastic father, but he at that time didn't really want to be, you know, a dad, but he offered to donate to my former wife and I. And I'm not sure if you can tell where this story is going. You probably can't, but... um, I think I'm going to make the leap you're married to him. Yeah. How about that? So my wife and I separated. So she left the marriage when I finally got pregnant and she left the marriage when and my oldest child. So he's, so my current husband is the biological father of three children, our three children and the legal father of just our two. So, (laughs) but he is a special type of person. I joked that he just, he thought he was just donating to two lesbians. And then now he's got, you know, (laughs) now he's got three children and he is pretty incredible. He, like I say, he's ridiculously calm, which annoys me. And when you have only known stress and hypervigilance and having to work for someone's love and care, it can kind of feel boring and it can kind of feel uncomfortable and it can kind of feel like what the goodness me is missing. But what the goodness me is missing is chaos and the fact that he's the same in the morning and the night. What you were just saying is interesting because I've heard that from a number of people that they talk about when they're in these turbulent relationships, these abusive relationships, there's a lot of drama and drama is energy and it's entertaining. You know, it may be awful at times, but there's all these highs and lows and all this stuff. Then they wind up in what might be called a healthy relationship, which you have with your husband, and it can get a little boring, you know, because there, there, there is no furniture flying through the air. No one's going to bed, you know, with uh, putting ice on something, you know, where they just got punched or something. So it is a lot to get used to, you know, that, that healthy doesn't really, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't sometimes in a twisted way have the attraction that abuse has. It's strange. Strange. You're exactly right. There is something that is missing, you know, obviously abuse and the relationships I had, even though they were nowhere near as abusive as what my I saw growing up, it felt almost like I loved them more because I had to keep working for their love. I had to keep guessing if they were going to continue to love me, had to guess if they were being duplicitous. I had to guess what was going to happen next. With my husband, he is so calm, so gentle, so kind. He challenges, and look, he's not perfect. You know, sometimes he'll say ridiculous statements, but I don't let him get away with it. 
I have this shirt that says you're too good for him and I'll wear it out and <laughs> I think it's not his most comfortable moment but I, <laughs> <laughs> he allows me to be me and he, look, to be honest, he doesn't know. He probably, when he listens to this podcast, Bill, he wouldn't have heard much of this stuff that I'm telling you. And he hasn't had the developmental trauma anywhere near. He, he had loving parents. Yes. It's not that he doesn't want to hear. It's probably, actually, no, it probably is that he doesn't want to hear. It's not a comfortable conversation for many. And to be honest, you've only probably heard 30, 40% of what's happened in my life. And I don't want to sound like a broken record. I don't want to bore people. I don't want to make people uncomfortable. But now the way that my marriage is, is that he's a good father. He does the physical load, but he also, because I'm such a hardcore feminist, I wouldn't have it any other way. I think that I have a responsibility to break the status quo of what men can do or what they should be able to do. And he is okay with that. Not that he would have a choice not to be okay with that, but he knows he knows the intrinsic part of me that this is what kept me alive and this voice that I've got this shy voice which is Mm -hmm. you know it's funny because I'm an introvert I am shy I can pretend I'm not shy I can show up in a way that's not shy when I need to but I have challenged this insidious belief of what people could be and what trauma is throughout my whole life And I also now have the legacy of continuing life because, one, I would never want to do to my children what my mum did to me. You know, I was an adult when she suicided, but even though I struggle with my PTSD and my depression and these feelings of inferiority and not being good enough, I don't have a choice. I'll just keep going. And I imagine it was probably, I imagine, you know, I don't, you don't really talk much about your wife, but that pain of losing a child and how you would have felt like you kind of, I don't know how you kept going in those moments. Don't have a choice. Just take it one little piece at a time. I think that, at least in our case, I think that in the, in the earliest times, in the earliest weeks, it's a defense mechanism that you feel just kind of numb. Mm. You have a lot of deadlines. You find out on a Friday night what happened and the next morning you're driving to cemeteries and going to funeral homes you're on a schedule and then you're picking out clothes for her to wear, unfortunately. And you're getting a lot of phone calls and you know, the time the the days were loaded with things to, to get your mind off at times what the real problem was. And it wasn't just someone passing away. It was a murder. We're fielding calls from all kinds of people, including detectives and you're kind of racing. And then all of a sudden it's quiet. It all stops. It's quiet. And then it starts to sink in. And she and I have approached it very differently. You know, I'm very outspoken. She is the opposite. If I bring up what happened at any point in time, although it's 19 years later, just about, the first thing she'll do is sort of look down and then drop her head like, how long are we going to talk about this? So, yeah, it's tough. Interesting how grief manifests differently for us all. Very different. A couple of things I want to ask you before we stop what advice you have for people who were listening to this? Your situation is so extraordinary. In so many of the episodes that we have had, it's somebody who is growing up and then meets somebody in high school or university, as you would call it, or um, after that, 
and maybe thinks this other person seems charming or terrific or attractive in some way. And then things start to turn and, and then the real abuser shows up and they have to somehow put up with it, be on the receiving end of it, and then eventually break free. Yours goes back to birth. So I don't know if I say to you, what advice do you have for those listening? I'll throw that out to you. I have no idea how you would answer that. I've got a few thoughts. I think we don't need to put a square peg into a round hole. Sometimes things do not make sense. It will never be okay that your daughter was murdered. It will never be okay that children are abused, that our children are their liberty and their autonomy is taken away and they are so traumatised. that We don't have to make sense of that. Sometimes it just is awful and they did not deserve it. Don't have to make sense of that. I also think, really importantly, we have to believe women. We have to just, even if the rare occasion that it might not be as it happened, and the way that they're describing it, we need to believe women and we need to support them because there is so many messages out there that we don't support women or we need to challenge it. We need to challenge what they said or maybe they did this or maybe they did that. No, just believe her. Simply just believe her. And I think lastly, but maybe most importantly, is equip your children. Equip your children to learn about red flags about listening to their bodies, teach them protective behaviours about their bodies, make a safe place for them if they do have abuse that they can tell you. Teach them about their five safe people. Remind them. Remind them all the time. Let them know that there are some safe people and if the first person doesn't listen, tell the second person and so on. And above all... And I think I'm preaching to the converted here, Bill, because I can tell that you'd be an amazing father. But value children. Do not think they're any less than an adult. They are probably even more important. That intrinsic beauty and value is the way that we can change the world. Make them feel like they're special. You know, I'm my worst critic. I'm not perfect. I'm far from perfect. I stay up thinking about how I could have changed some of my behaviours or how I've raised my voice, but 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 value children. Don't treat them as an imposition because you're creating the life that they're going to have for the rest of their life. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I, I It's such a great thought. I don't have to be convinced. I'd like to think that I did that a lot with both kids, both kids. Amanda, your story, which is still being written, can make anyone who's listening cry at times, I think, and but also cheer you on throughout this. It is hard to listen to, and it's said this to you before we got started, but it's an honor to have time with you, to speak with you. It really, I really mean that. And you know, sometimes we refer to stories that we hear. I don't know if they say this in Australia or not, but a rags to riches story. I'm sure you've heard that. Yeah, I'm a bit of an unfortunate Cinderella, maybe. Sometimes people throw that term rags to riches around. Yours is 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 literally that. I mean, it's a rags to riches where you have arrived. So I just want to thank you for putting your entire life on display. And yours is a breathtaking story, And but your courage and your will to live through and beyond all that's happened to you and around you 
shows what a good and powerful force you are. And I just want to thank you again for honoring this podcast with your presence, and you have my deepest respect. Well, thank you, Bill. You're amazing, and just the fact that you let me talk is it's rare. It's really rare, so thank you. You will always be welcome back. Please send me an email. Let's get back together on this. I'm sure you'll think of things afterwards. I had some sense of where this conversation might go, but I, my wildest imagination never saw it going where it went. And I just feel so bad how you and your sister were treated. And there's a very special place for you after your life is over, joining up with your sister. And I do believe in that. I really do believe in uh, afterlife. And, and I mean that. Yeah, exactly. I um, I feel like she would be, and I said it in her eulogy, in the hands, in the arms of angels. And however that manifests, and I can see that for our people that have gone before us, that the only place that there would be would be in the arms of angels. Yeah, that's the way it should be. And I think that's the way it is. One day we'll find out. More work to be done here first, Bill. Yes, I think so. I think so. I, I have a lot of energy and, uh, and there's plenty of time to, to do a lot more good in this world. And we need more people like you. Nice to team up with you. Thank you. It's, it's an honor. Thank you. You're incredible, Bill. Thank you. You too. This concludes Amanda's story of survival. It has been a very difficult story to listen to and to imagine. But we see through it all how Amanda hangs in there and doesn't let the abuse take her away. It has been a signal honor to have Amanda speak with us in this interview. And of course, we wish her the best in her continued journey. Thank you for listening to the When Dating Hurts podcast. We have been steadily moving up in podcast review rankings based on downloads in the relationships category. That means more and more listeners are getting the kind of advice that can improve lives for victims, survivors, and their families. If you feel we need to hear your story, do not hesitate to email me at billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. That's billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com.